those two young Marines over there fighting for their country. Man, they're gonna be friends forever. Well, they both come back eventually, but as bombs and destiny would have it, they don't come back together. Yeah, the one good morning, good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. Cable Smith welcoming everybody to the Lone Star Outdoors show. A little help there from Jack Ingram kicking things off for us. Uh, thanks to our title sponsor, Dallas Safari Club, and our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. And thanks to you guys and gals for being here today. It is a treat to be talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies. And man, oh man, I keep saying every week is my favorite week to be alive in the great outdoors. This one might actually be my favorite week because it is the opening of the Texas rifle season and youth waterfowl weekend. So I'll be whitetail hunting uh, Saturday and Monday, and then uh, Sunday, plan on taking the kiddos on a youth duck hunt. Should be a great weekend. Hope you guys have similar plans. Uh, and we've got a great show lined up for you today, by the way. So you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Be sure to pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old thermos. Yeah, the one that Granddaddy passed down, that green Stanley. Still got mud caked on it from three duck seasons ago. Hey, maybe you spike it with some of Grandpappy's uh, cough syrup. I'm not advocating mixing firearms and uh, whiskey, but I know some of you duck hunters do it anyway. So whether you do or don't, I hope everyone is safe and has a great opening weekend. And let's rock and roll here because here's what's coming up on today's broadcast. We're going to dissect the term trophy hunter. What does that mean to you? Is it something you embrace? Is it something you shy away from? And when you hear that term, is there a negative connotation associated with it? And if there is, why do you think that that's the case? Well, uh, I've been pretty torn on that, that term over the years, and I've come to the point where I just embrace it. Because, yeah, I like big racks on my wall, and I like a freezer full of venison. And you can be a trophy hunter and still utilize every part of the animal and i would argue you're utilizing more of the animal because yeah you're taking the horns for a memory or a mount to place on your wall or hang in your garage or on your tool shed wherever but you're still using the meat so i don't know where in history that term trophy hunter became such a negative thing and to me any hunter well, you're not a hunter. If you just cut the animal's head off and leave it in the field, then you're not a hunter at all. You're just a killer. And in most cases, I'd say you're probably a poacher too uh, because nobody that buys a hunting license is interested in, in wasting the meat. And if you did, you're no friend of mine and you're no friend of conservation or ethics or anything else for that matter. So we're going to have someone who is much more experienced and knowledgeable um, on this topic than myself. And, and I feel like I have a solid grasp on it. I mean, with the ties with Dallas Safari Club and they don't shy away from that term, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in it to win it. I'm, I'm full-fledged. I'm a trophy hunter. I don't care. Not going to apologize for it. Um, and I'm also someone who at some point in my life will probably put out a wild game cookbook because I enjoy that aspect just as much. Anyway, Shane Mahoney from Conservation Visions will join us here momentarily. The list of accolades and accomplishments and acknowledgements that Shane has racked up in his career speak for themselves. I'm not even going to try to list them. It'll take an hour. 
but when it comes to conservation initiatives through hunting, uh, he is about as respected as it gets. So Shane Mahoney will join us here momentarily for a couple segments. Yeah, we're, we're really going to get into it uh, on this topic. And then also, there's this idea out there that people in North America don't need to hunt for food because there's so many other options. Well, Shane is also working on a project to dispel that myth and is actually trying to quantify the amount of natural protein that hunters bring home from the field each year. And that's in pounds across North America. And this thing is, uh, it's in its, I don't want to say infantile stages because uh, it isn't, but it is slowly progressing and it is mind boggling to see just how much meat we hunters and anglers, fish counts too, uh, bring home to put on the table from our adventures afield or on the water. And so we'll get into that as well. And because, you know, if hunting went away, think about the domino effect. How much other stuff we'd have to raise, you know, cows, chicken, etc., to take the place of all that protein that was lost. It's absolutely fascinating. And so we'll get into that with Shane as well. I, I'll be honest with you, I think it's going to take the entire broadcast uh, to cover all of these topics in detail. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm um, really excited to have Shane joining us. A couple other things to mention. Uh, so Bo will be here. Oh, and then he's got, he's going to bring his calls with him. And I'll ask him to do a demonstration. You know, when you've got birds working your spread, they're making a, a pass, you know, an initial pass, and then circling three, four, five times. What does he do to try to get them to land feet down in the decoys? Uh, so cool stuff coming up here with Bo in just a little bit. Uh, it should be a great show. I'm certainly excited about it. There's no doubt about that. A uh, couple other things to mention are November. I can't believe it's November. Our November photo of the month contest is going on right now. We've got a bison cooler that we are giving away to this month's winner. Simply email your best hunting or fishing photo to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Better yet, post it on our Facebook page uh, or tag us with LSOS Photo Contest on Instagram. We'll get you entered. And then our 12 monthly winners are still squaring off for a chance to hunt trophy, axis deer, or black buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas this spring. Uh, so cool grand prize package there from KCR. Uh, let's do a quick giveaway. I've got a bison coolers cap and a Lone Star Outdoor Show sticker. We'll throw in uh, a Lone Star beer t-shirt as well. Third person to text in the word mallard. That's mallard. To 214-289-7807. I will send you today's prize pack. Uh, let's take a break. Up next, we'll be joined by award-winning author, conservationist, the founder of Conservation Visions, Shane Mahoney. Drops in next, right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. He said, Drifter, can you make folks cry when you play and sing? Have you paid your dues? Can you moan the blues? Can you bend down guitars? Hey y'all, Cable here for my good friends over at Outlaw Outfitters. This veteran-owned and operated outfit will put you on the ducks, to say the least. I've been hunting with them for, gosh, four or five years now. They also do uh, deer, hog, and turkey as well. They have over 15,000 acres they hunt in Collin, Grayson, and Fannin counties. Whether you want to do a turnkey, you know, one-morning waterfowl hunt, or a complete weekend package with authentic Cajun cooking and lodging, it's all right there within an hour of the Metroplex, and you can find them at HuntOutlaw.com. 
In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Abel Smith, welcoming everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoors show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well. Unrung is the name of that tune. Brand new stuff from the Turnpike Troubadours. Uh, by the way, if you missed last week's show, be sure to uh, check out the podcast because Turnpike frontman Evan Felker was on for a couple segments. Uh, interesting stuff from a passionate bird hunter and and uh, all-around outdoorsman. Of course, we got into the new record as well. Uh, anyway, uh, we are all set to talk about trophy hunting with Shane Mahoney. Really, just that term, trophy hunting, uh, because it has a lot of context there. Some good, some bad. Uh, but before we do that, this segment of the show proudly brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader. In big game conservation, I'd like to invite you to get plugged in with this great group of like-minded folks who are passionate about education, hunter's rights, and conservation. And to do that, go to our website, check us out. You can find us at biggame.org. All right, uh, well, without further ado, let's bring on our first guest today. He's a friend of Dallas Safari Club as well. He is also a uh, respected author, conservationist, and the founder of Conservation Visions. It's my pleasure to welcome Shane Mahoney to the show. Well, you're very welcome. I'm delighted to be here. I look forward to our conversation. Oh, me as well. So, uh, first of all, how has your fall been? It's been great. Uh, of course, I, I live in Newfoundland, so I'm situated on an island on the eastern flank of North America, surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean, which uh, brings us uh, quite a variety of buffet of weather in every season. Uh, but we've had a very good summer, unusually warm and sunny for us. Uh, not Texas heat, <laughs> but uh, warmer than we're used to. And the fall so far has brought us a lot of sunshine and uh, very nice weather also. So it's been an unusually nice year, I guess, is how you would put it. <laughs> right. Well, so any time to, uh, to hit the woods or your favorite... I don't know if you have trout up there or if it's uh, more like salmon or, or what, what you have in, in Newfoundland. Well, we have uh, world-famous uh, brook trout fishing on the island, but also especially in Labrador, which is the northern part of the province, and uh, Atlantic salmon. We have you know more than 80% of all the Atlantic salmon rivers in the 
northwest Atlantic actually flow into onto the island here or on Labrador, the northern portion. So yes, I have fished for both uh, of those species uh, this year here. I fished for tarpon uh, in Trinidad. And, oh wow! And, uh, 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 moose hunting, and I uh, hope still to do some uh, some additional hunting in uh, Western Canada if things work out. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so tell us a little bit about your your background as a conservationist, and and how that ties into conservation visions. Well, um, I spent uh, most of uh, my career up to this point in time uh, leading wildlife research programs for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in Canada. I, I, I led the wildlife programs for the government here. And then that expanded into developing an institute uh, here um, uh, shared between the university and the government uh, dealing with issues of wildlife uh, research, wildlife conservation. Um, and then I went on to lead the science programs for government. Um, since uh, leaving government and leaving that institute, uh, I founded Conservation Visions, um, which is not uh, as much a field research-oriented organization. Uh, obviously, it's more related to policy and influencing decision-making and public perceptions. Um, number one, around wildlife and wildlife conservation and why that is so critically important. And number two, to help explain to people that there are many pathways to conservation. Um, and in Canada and the United States, we have been linked in our pathways through the conservation model that we've developed here. Mm -hmm. um, but that one of the uh, very significant pathways, which can be counterintuitive to some people, is through the actual harvest of uh, wild creatures, whether they be mammals, birds, fish, whatever, and uh, to demonstrate to people that these activities incentivize and have incentivized a very large group of people uh, in the public to actually work very much for the conservation of wildlife. Um, but in addition to my work with conservation visions, uh, I have very strong uh, relationships and partnerships with uh, a number of conservation organizations. And of course, Dallas Safari Club is has been a tremendous uh, of course and supporter to all of the work that I've been doing for quite a number of years and uh, have always stepped up in a, in a very big way in support of the conservation efforts I lead and work work on and uh, in addition to my work in North America uh, I do a lot of international work in the sense that I serve as uh, vice chair for sustainable use and livelihoods for the World Conservation Union, the IUCN, which is the largest conservation organization in the world, mm -hmm. and I also serve as uh, international liaison for the North American Wildlife Society, and uh, as deputy president of policy and law for the International Council for Wildlife, which is based in Europe. So I have a, I have a, a lot of North American... I hope our listeners are taking notes on this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I do a lot of things internationally, which of course... The dovetailing of the North American and international work, uh, you know, leads into such topics which will be relevant to your listeners as trophy hunting, community-based resource management in places like Africa, um, and also, of course, I've done a great deal of work and published a lot and spoken a lot about the North American model. So that's mm -hmm. who I am. Well, so your uh, accomplishments and accolades speak for themselves. That's why we wanted to have you on today. Um, and and there's two things that I really want to discuss today, Shane. The first being 
this, in my opinion, inexcusable and, and somewhat baffling idea that I should pretend that I only hunt for meat and that a nice set of horns or antlers or an eight pound brown trout doesn't mean anything because, um, yeah, I, I'm sorry, but our human nature is, you know, we want the biggest truck, the prettiest girl on the golf course. We want to have the longest drive and, and the biggest buck. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because I, and I told you off there, my family lives off of the things that I bring home. We eat venison or, or fish or turkey or whatever it is that, that dad has brought home. That's what goes on the table for our protein. And, and yeah, I've got a, a trophy room full of, of, of wonderful um, memories. And, and in my opinion, um, nine out of 10 of them are the m- most mature animal that we could find, you know? Um, and that, that to me is conservation because you want to take the biggest, you want to take the oldest, most mature animal. And, and most of the time they're going to have the biggest set of horns, the nicest rack anyway. Well, uh, there's a lot in your introduction to that topic, obviously, so let me start to sort of break it down piece by piece. Sure. Um, first of all, history is incredibly important to modern topics, whether we're talking, <clears throat> you know, uh, national security or whether we're talking conservation. And the history of trophy hunting, in quotation marks, stems back uh, to the early part of the 20th century and the latter part of the previous century, when um, North American wildlife was in an absolutely desperate circumstance, uh, driven by a number of factors, but ultimately by market hunting and the sale of wildlife um, without any restriction or regulation, which was leading to the loss of so many of today's popular species that most American and Canadian uh, listeners would be quite surprised uh, to realize that all of the common species like pronghorn and mule deer and elk and whitetail, you know, every single one of those species um, were so uh, depopulated in North America that if we'd had Endangered Species Acts at the time in either country, they all would have been listed. Mm-hmm. So. What emerged out of that dire circumstance, and believe me, it was dire, um, um, was uh, an awakening, uh, particularly in American society, but also north of the border as we work together, as we have on so many things, um, that uh, something had to be done. And there were two choices facing us at that point in time, really. Um, We knew that the killing of wildlife and its sale was driving the, the, the loss of animals. There was no question about that. Mm-hmm. So we could either eliminate the killing entirely, or we could come up with some sort of process whereby it was regulated. And of course, the genius of the idea was not only would we regulate it, but we would turn that regulated hunting activity into an incentive to keep wildlife with us, because there would be people who would want it for meat and for the chase and for the cultural experience of hunting. So the idea took hold that what we should do is have hunting which was primarily focused on the mature males of the species, Mm -hmm. whether that was moose or whether that was uh, grizzly bear or whether that was elk, it it was really immaterial. But for the big game, the large animal species, this is what we would do. And what that would accomplish, of course, is it would allow those uh, individual animals to have contributed to the gene pool, you know, contributed through reproduction in their earlier years, 
while at the same time allowing for a recreational harvest, which would include for the antlers or the skull or the pelt, but also for the meat. And so the term trophy hunting became uh, established. And in fact, um, the idea was linked very closely with fair chase. So you not only would restrict your hunting to not shooting females, not shooting young males, but only shooting the mature males of the species, but you would also do it under fair chase conditions. And of course, if you manage to take an animal uh, under those circumstances and fitting those criteria, you know, an older male, mm-hmm. and obviously they would often have the largest horns or antlers, etc., then you would be rightfully able to claim that you had taken a trophy. <laughs> In other words, you could claim that you had done something special. You had contributed to conservation, you'd done it under fair chase, and you had, you know, passed over a lot of other animals uh, that you might have uh, harvested uh, to wait and take a particular one. And, of course, that meant that you would also have uh, poorer odds of being successful because you passed up a lot of other animals during your hunt. This is where the term trophy hunting came into existence. Mm-hmm. What has happened over time, of course, is that, like so many other terms that we use in society, this has become changed and modified as language does. In the beginning, there was no suggestion, of course, that the people who you know, managed to get a trophy, one of these mature males under fair chase conditions, didn't eat the animal. You know, of course, we knew they did. They were harvesting the meat, and they were harvesting the horns, and they were harvesting the pelt. If anything, the trophy hunter was making the most use of the animal. Because not only was the meat being taken, but everything was being taken, essentially. Funny how times change. Yeah. yeah. So this was, this was the history of it. This was the origin of it. Okay, so now that we have a good grasp of the history of the term trophy hunter, uh, Shane, let's do this. Let's take a quick break, come back, and then uh, kind of dissect where we are today. And the stigma that that term carries in modern times. Uh, sound like a plan? Perfect. Uh, That segment, by the way, brought to you by the Drive Over Chalk. Uh, If you're looking for a better way to haul your ATV, golf cart, uh, four-wheeler, side-by-side or otherwise, go to driveoverchalk.com. And all you do is so simple. You install it on your flatbed, you drive over it, and then your investment is secure. It's that easy. You can find it at driveoverchalk.com, and you'll get free shipping if you tell them that you heard about it here, use the promo code LOMESTAR or CABLE, and that's driveoverchalk.com. We'll be right back with more from Shane Mahoney right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The system is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Hey, North Texas sports fans, this is Brian Spagnola, General Manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com 
is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. They unchained my feet, they unshackled my hands, and they let me go instead of that innocent man. I've got a second chance, I'm going to make it count, make my way out west, maybe head down south. There's a little Jason Eadie. Barabbas is the name of that one, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I certainly appreciate each and every one of you as we are uh, going to continue our conversation with Shane Mahoney here momentarily. Um, But before we do that, this segment of the show is brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. And since we're talking trophy hunting, there's no better time than to tell you about Rustic Reminders Taxidermy in Marion, Texas, now with the second location in San Antonio. Josh and Becky Gunther have been taking care of all of my trophy mounts for six years, from whitetail to black bear to trout to exotics, turkey, whatever I want to put on the wall. I want that memory to last a lifetime. Hey, they take care of it. They do amazing work with fast turnaround time. They answer the phone when I call, and you can find them at gr the number eight mounts.com that's gr the number eight mounts.com all right uh well let's jump back into it here with shane mahoney world-renowned conservationist um truly a leader in that field and when people talk about sustainable use hunting shane is one of the first names that come to light and so you know shane before the break we talked about the term trophy hunter or trophy hunting and and we discussed what that meant 100 years ago when there was no negative connotation associated with that term. And now, fast forward to today, Shane, and you know you hear the term trophy hunter, and, and some people, you know, it's almost like they cringe. Now, 100 years later, we get to a circumstance which, for many, many reasons, um, the term has been reinterpreted or misused or inaccurately used not only by uh, uh, opponents of hunting, it has often been inaccurately used or referenced or tossed about in a less than accurate way, even by hunters themselves. I and always so, get a kick out of the guys who say, oh, you can't eat the horns and I'm just a meat hunter. But at the same time, if you've got one tag in your pocket and two bucks walk out and one's seven years old and 160 inches and one's two years old and 120 inches, you'd be a fool not to shoot the bigger one, and and besides the point that conservation says shoot the bigger one. So yeah. I always like to call BS on, on that. that uh, not that, I mean, listen, like I said, that's all we eat is, is wild game. Uh, but to say, oh, I'm just a meat hunter, I just don't, I don't buy it. Right. So, I mean, this, all of us have always hunted for many reasons. Now, does that mean that there aren't some people who are 
just totally driven by trying to get a particular set of horns or antlers. Of course, there are some hunters who are motivated that way, just as there may be some hunters who are just totally motivated by meat. I mean, the hunting public is not a, a monolithic thing. Mm-hmm. It's made up of individuals. We're all different. But the bottom line is that almost every human being that you can talk to who has ever hunted or fished, uh, they do it for many reasons. They do it for the experience. They do it for the things they see. They do it for the time they can spend in close proximity to wildlife, often in, in wilder areas than where their job takes them. Uh, they like the meat because it's healthy, uh, you know, meat that they, they know its source. They know where it comes from. They like to share it with friends. And, of course, they like to often display uh, the horns or antlers of an animal. I mean, if you, if you, and so a trophy has also itself many, many, many interpretations. Mm-hmm. So some people like to take the antlers, no matter what size they are, for example, from an animal, uh, simply because it's a remembrance of the hunt. Some people, you know, are more inclined to collect or display really significant, larger examples of the species um, because, you know, they are particularly interested in that. But many of us take, in quotation marks, trophy remembrances of hunting, too. We take photographs. We take skulls. We may take small pieces of bone. We may take the antlers. We may take the jaw. We may take the skulls. I mean, there's, there's a thousand things that we can talk about um, that are individualistic about what hunters and, and fishers may do once they have harvested a particular animal. But the bottom line is that we have come to a point in society where trophy hunting, in quotation marks, has developed its own controversies. And most of those controversies are based on some kind of impression that, vague or otherwise, that the only reason the animal died was for a set of horns or antlers or something of that nature. And that's the only use was ever put to an animal. I mean, this is a broad generalization. But that's kind of where the the negative impressions come from. Mm -hmm. And we know that whether it's here in North America, such as your own experience, of course, you'll take the larger buck versus a smaller buck, but you eat the meat, and this is part of your significant part of your family's diet. That's true of millions of people in Canada and the United States every year who might be called trophy hunters, I suppose, in one sense of the word or another. And similarly, in other parts of the world, such as Africa, which, of course, is an area that attracts a lot of attention because of the iconic species like rhinos and lions and elephants and and so on. Um, That's a circumstance, too, where many people travel for very long distances, not just from Canada and the United States, but they travel from Europe or from Russia or from China or from anywhere in the globe, and they may go to Africa to hunt uh, wildlife. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that the vast majority of all those animals are consumed now for, for meat and for food. Mm-hmm. Yes, the hunter may take the horns or you know antlers or a skull or a pelt or something of this nature from the animal. But yes, he may or she may well do that. But in a vast majority of cases, all of the food... Um, from those uh, harvested animals is consumed by local people. I mean, obviously, somebody who travels all the way from halfway around the world doesn't fly all his elephant meat home, right? If he goes to Africa, <laughs> elephants. I just I went to South Africa for the first time this past summer, mm-hmm. shot nine animals, and uh, uh, didn't bring one ounce of meat home because he couldn't. It's illegal. 
Uh, but I will tell you that from the warthog to the kudu to, uh, to a diker, every animal was utilized by the hunting camp and the local community, uh, on the outskirts of it. So, you know, whatever was shot was utilized. We ate everything from heart to tongue to, uh, with the eland, we ate eland tail soup, which is like oxtail soup. Mm -hmm. Um, so everything was, was utilized. Yes, and of course the other side of that is that uh, <clears throat> these activities, um, you know, and the fact that people come and pay, and that there is a there is a, an industry and a business uh, based on an economic model that's successful, is what allows, in many cases, in a variety of African countries, for wildlife to exist in the abundance that it does. And your case of South Africa is a classic example. I mean, wildlife in South Africa was in desperate circumstances, not so very much unlike what was true of North America. Mm -hmm. And it was really uh, the creation of a new conservation model, an incentivized model, where landowners there could, you know, um, attract clients who would come to hunt wildlife. Um, uh, and that, of course, gave the landowner the incentive to keep wildlife rather than agricultural species, much more poorly suited to the land, than the wildlife was, this whole system in South Africa is what has led to the recovery and resurgence of wildlife in that country, which is one of the most famous wildlife destinations in the world. But a very, very significant part of it uh, has been based on utilitarian, sustainable use, i.e. hunting uh, of wildlife on that country. And it is a model and a history that is not, it cannot be denied. The evidence is there. Now, does that mean that South Africa doesn't have other aspects of conservation, that it doesn't have some great national parks and wildlife places otherwise protected? Of course it does. It has that too. But the main factor for the larger part of uh, the country where wildlife has been recovered has been recovered on the basis of a sort of a, a private land and incentivized model of conservation that has involved you know, non-resident hunters to an appreciable extent coming from other countries of the world to come and pay for the opportunity to experience South Africa, South African wildlife, to have a chance to hunt. And in those cases, the hunter takes some things home, like horns or antlers or skin or whatever, of course, makes use of the animal. And then the meat is also used by local people and in some cases the staff of those very hunting organizations uh, or businesses that are there. Yeah. So, but it's so, very much trophy hunting. I mean, that's yeah, that's the basis of the South yeah, African, you know, conservation model. Maybe more so than here, even because of, you know, I, they didn't talk about a lot of public hunting opportunity when I was over there. Um, I'm sure that some does exist, but I think maybe in North America we have, a, you know, a better public hunting opportunity or system than than they do. No, there's no question. I mean, most of the people who, as I say, come from all over the world you know, are not planning on taking all their meat back. And in many cases, depending on the country, you can't take your meat back out of the country because of disease control issues and, you know, health issues and so on and so forth that must be regulated within the country's own regulatory system. Mm -hmm. um, but the important point is, you know, what are we striving for? What we're striving for is to keep wildlife with us. And you're quite correct in that the model in North America is vastly different from the model in South Africa. And South Africa's model is somewhat different than Tanzania's, and Tanzania's model is somewhat different than Spain's, and so on and so forth. There are many models 
for the conservation of wildlife around the world, many of them, and for many of them, a very significant factor, and in some cases a major factor, in some cases maybe the decisive factor, is the sustainable use or the harvest of those animals through hunting and angling. So, in other words, you can have a very different model in two or three or five countries that you may wish to compare, but even in many different kinds of models and different cultures and different histories, the hunting of wildlife still has proven to be over a very long period of time now, with many examples, uh, one of the strongest attributes for conservation mechanisms in the world. Okay, Shane, let's uh, let's stop right there for a second, take a quick break. Um, we definitely <laughs> covered what trophy hunting does for South Africa and Africa uh, in general. And when we come back, um, I'm going to ask you if this is a term that we should embrace or try to avoid as a hunting community. Uh, that segment, by the way, brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas, available in the camo can right now. Grab a 12-pack on your way to the deer lease, and remember, drink responsibly when celebrating, knocking down that big buck with an ice cold Lone Star beer. We continue our discussion on trophy hunting with Shane Mahoney next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. There's a burial ground beneath a cattle herd. Mr. Henry Ford's building me a Thunderbird, my Thunderbird. Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. If you gotta take the long way home, you better make good time. Every morning when we wake up, try to make the day up. How's it go long? I'm in the room of a man on the moon. I can't stop and start these wheels, keep rolling. And I know I gotta walk through it. Rambling hard, a little Drew Kennedy bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by the House Bar Club. Cable Smith here with you on a lovely weekend. Uh, thank you so much for sharing a part of it with me. If you're tuning in on one of our 30 radio affiliates, glad to have you. If you're checking out the podcast, hey, that's great too. I'm just glad you're here, as there's no place I'd rather be than talking outdoors with you. And with that being said, uh, we're about to continue our discussion on the term trophy hunting with Shane Mahoney. But first, this segment brought to you by the all-new Scent Blaster. You guys and gals have seen me posting pictures of this product. If you use any kind of liquid attractant in your hunting sets, whether that's deer, hogs, predators, bear, whatever, if you use a liquid attractant, hey, the Scent Blaster is a better mousetrap. It's going to get more scent out and get that scent out longer. It's so easy. All you do, fill up a scent container, slide it into the housing, Hang it in a tree if you're trying to draw animals in, or hang it in your blind with you if you want to use it for a cover scent. So it's totally up to you. You fill it with the scent of your choice. It retails for $34.99, and you can find it at scentplaster.net. Uh, okay, well, let's go ahead and jump back into it here. Shane, we have discussed the history of the term trophy hunting. 
a term that originally wasn't shrouded in this cloud of negativity and confusion. Uh, then we discussed what trophy hunting does for South Africa and, and Africa as a whole. Now it's time for the million-dollar question. And I believe that 99.9% of folks out there who buy a hunting license do not cut the head off the animal and leave it to rot and just take the horns. That's not hunting. You're just a killer at that point. And I don't want to associate with uh, anyone who would ever think that that is an acceptable practice. Uh, that is, you know, that flies in the face of what hunting is. So with that being said, we already have both agreed that trophy hunting is conservation. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but is this a term that we as a hunting community should embrace or is there a better alternative for us as a trophy hunting community? Because we all agree, you know, we like big bucks, big bass. We like mallards with bands. We like 12-inch beards. We like 60-pound catfish. All that stuff is inconsequential as far as the species goes because our human nature is to like the biggest, the prettiest, and the best. So with that in mind, Shane, the term trophy hunter, is that something that we should embrace or would we be better served to let it fade to black? Well, a couple of comments with regard to that. Um, first of all, um, it is true that some um, anti-hunting organizations who just, you know, have a view in principle that hunting should should stop and should not be allowed, have uh, used the debate and have entered the debate on trophy hunting and have um, emphasized a very negative and uh, inappropriate interpretation of that term mm -hmm. without any reference to the history I've just described to you um, and without any reference to the conservation benefits that have arisen. So there's no doubt that there is a community of individuals who are philosophically opposed to hunting who promote that opportunity because it helps them with their objectives. It is an error, however, in my personal view, to think that that is where the difficulties begin and end for the term trophy hunting, because through many mechanisms, there is also in the broader public mind, there is a debate over the term trophy, you know, and, and many of the people who wonder about it are not anti-hunting. They just wonder about it. They wonder, does that, you know, what do you really mean by trophy hunting? Is it that somebody kills an animal, just cuts the head off and, you know, all that? I mean, many people in society are not as familiar with hunting as you and I. So they are, I would put them in the category of confused, mm -hmm. which is a different category than, you know, anti-hunting organizations or individuals who just feel philosophically this is wrong and they're going to try to end it in any way they can. And I think it's very important for the hunting world to realize that not everybody who talks about trophy hunting uh, and is confused about it or wondering about it, not every one of those people are anti-hunters. In fact, there is a debate even within the hunting community about the term trophy, as you well know. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not just you know some a group of bad people you know who are hiding behind bushes somewhere talking about this term. To come to your issue of whether we should use the term or not use the term, or you know uh, should we defend it, you know uh, how should we approach embrace it? it even? Yeah, my personal view is that we should get rid of all adjectives with respect to hunting. Mm -hmm. Because I just think that the adjectives, they do more to confuse people than they do help people understand hunting. 
you know, and because we hunt for so many different motivations, it's ridiculous to use a particular adjective. So let's take meat hunting. Well, yes, the very point you make, yes, you, you, you are a meat hunter, but you're also a selective hunter, aren't you? Absolutely. Right? So, and, and therefore, you might be a trophy hunter in, you know, in, in, in that definition of the word trophy. Um, but you might also be uh, a sport hunter or a recreational hunter or a, you know, mm-hmm. a primitive weapon hunter. But I see where you're going. At the end of the day, yeah. I'm just a hunter. Yeah. I mean, I just don't see the advantage. And I know this is a controversial position that I take on this, and I've written about it in my columns and articles in Sports Field and on many other platforms. I've talked about this. I just think we are hunters. Mm-hmm. We are hunters, period. Some of us go to South Africa to hunt. Some of us hunt only in our home state of Colorado, or we're just a moose hunter from the island of Newfoundland because that's just what our life experience has been. Mm-hmm. But we're hunters, and yes, you know, a rural fisherman in North, in, in on the island of Newfoundland, you go down and speak to him while he's fixing his boat, you look up on a shed, there's a, a rack of a moose, all whitened by the salt spray and so on and so forth, with a big nail through the through the skull, you know, nail out to a shed, mm-hmm. not a fancy room or anything of this nature. But he still talks about it in trophy terms, you know, it was a great animal, it was a great hunt, I did this, I did that. But I... I wouldn't really call him a trophy hunter, um, and I don't see what advantage there is to the hunting world to be using all these terms. I just think every time we introduce a term, we introduce a certain level of confusion, and we also introduce a certain level of bias and a certain level of um, debate and tension that's unnecessary, both between the hunting community and the non-hunting community, as well as between the hunting community and the anti-hunting community, and also within the hunting community itself. And I don't think that any of those debates help hunting or help the conservation of wildlife very much at all. There have been polls done in the United States of America since the 1960s, public opinion polls, that have clearly demonstrated this is the broad public. This is not the anti-hunting public. This is not the hunting public. Mm-hmm. But it obviously includes you know, people from all of those the sectors, and they have consistently shown for 50 years that if you talk about hunting and use one term associated with it, you'll have a, a higher sort of public approval rating than if you use another term. And they generally go, someone who hunts for meat, is, is that's considered the most acceptable, if you will, uh, kind of, of hunting. Then if you use a term like sport hunting or recreational hunting, it falls a little bit, and then if you use the term trophy hunting, it falls further. So we know, we have evidence, we've had evidence for half a century that these terms create divisions in society. Divisions exist between, you know, between hunt, the hunting community and other communities, but it also creates this division in many cases within hunting. So my personal desire, view, mm-hmm. <laughs> option on all this is to call the individual who goes to South Africa or Tanzania to hunt Cape Buffalo and the individual who goes to Alberta to hunt mule deer and the individual you know who goes to Pennsylvania to hunt whitetails and the individual who goes to you know uh, British Columbia to hunt mountain sheep uh, I call them hunters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in at the very point you make in in most cases 
they're all motivated by multiple reasons to go. The adventure, the experience, see the animals, you know, the opportunity, you know, wondering whether you will get an opportunity or not get an opportunity because that's what hunting is about. Um, but then they they take a mature male, which is a conservation ethic built into the conservation uh, system of North America for a hundred years. For for a hundred years, we, we've had that principle in place. They take a mature male, um, and then they look at the mature male and they say, "What a beautiful set of horns this this sheep has." Am I just going to leave them there? Uh, right, right. No, I, I'm not. I'm going to put that on my pack and I'm going to carry it out and look at all that lovely meat. Am I going to leave it there? No, I'm not going to leave it there. I'm going to pack that out and I'm going to eat that animal. I'm going to use it. And maybe I'll even take the full pelt because I might want to tan the pelt and and have that for, for some particular. In other words, I will make as much use of the animal as I possibly can. Absolutely. And, and I think that, 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 that should be... You know, that should be the ideal, and we we should all be called hunters in this regard. Now, you and I both know there's a lot of reasons why the term trophy is used. Uh, there's a lot of law and policy and institutional and organizational things that are built around, you know, the term trophy hunting. And perhaps it's unlikely that the terms will ever, you know, disappear or not be used. But I have two motivations one is to keep wildlife with us. That's number one. And number two is to make sure that this tradition and this activity, which has proven so important for conservation, is supported and maintained not just by the people who do it, because we're 4.5% in the United States of America today hmm. and about the same number in Canada, but is supported by the broad publics of these two countries. And we have to think about that. No matter how passionate we are, no matter how, you know, how deep our understanding of all of these issues are, we have to realize that a very significant percentage of that public does not understand. And who's going to help them mm -hmm. if it's not us? Mm -hmm. And if we don't do it in the right way, then, you know, we can we can do inadvertent harm to, to our traditions and, and, and to wildlife. So yeah. well, it, kind of in favor of kicking it out, you know, and just calling ourselves hunters and be done with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that gives me something to think about, you know, personally, because I told you here I am embracing this term trophy hunter and I'm not shying away from it. And, no, no, no. and, and, uh, and, and you've given me a little food for thought on that, uh, on that well, front. Alternatives, isn't it? Right. You know, I think the only choices we have are to uh, defend it. And of course I've worked to defend it very much as well. Uh, yeah. Oh, and I think, I think a lot of times people direct it. Maybe it's just a, a reactionary thing because people have called me that. And it's like, okay, let me think about it. Yeah, I guess I am, and I'm not yeah. ashamed to say that. No, no. So, of course, and you know, the, this this group I work with, the World Conservation Union. I mean, we've come up with world standards, guidelines for trophy hunting. I was one of the the authors of that. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, we're all putting our head in the sand and, and pretending the term doesn't exist. And I just want, if we are going to use the term, that we better be prepared for a very significant effort to educate the public. Because 99.9% .9 of hunters don't know where that term comes from, right? Yeah. So, so that's our two alternatives, and you've identified one. Let's stand up and, and, and defend the term and explain to people exactly what is meant by this term so we, we get rid of the misinterpretations of it. And that's a, that's a perfectly good alternative. Well, I'm open-minded enough to think that you know, uh, your, 
your stance, it might be the better route, you know, uh, it absolutely could be. And then we eliminate the term meat hunter, trophy hunter, uh, all that stuff. I mean, you take sport hunter. That's exactly the same problem that we have with trophy. The, the term sport was introduced to the jargon and the sort of language of hunting in North America by largely by through British influence of British aristocrats who came and one of whom in particular, William Herbert, wrote under the name of Frank Forrester, a very popular uh, writer in, uh, who, who talked about you know, the right traditions and fair chase and these kinds of things. And that if you hunted fair chase, you were a sport. You know, you gave the animal a sporting chance, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so, everybody agreed with that. And right? that's not a negative thing at all. <laughs> not at all. Yeah. But, but yet we know that when you, when you link the term sport now with hunting in a modern public, they think you're doing it for frivolous reasons. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they say, well, if you want sport, you know, why don't you shoot a few hoops? Yeah. Why don't you go out with a soccer ball? You see? And then my mindset of that term, for me personally, it's totally different. It's uh, For me, when I'm going to get going on what I would call a sporty hunt, it's when I am hunting behind bird dogs. And it's like a gentlemanly totally. thing, you know? So yeah. Wait for the bird to rise. I think know? of a 20-gauge over-under, some yeah. some pointers, and I think that's going to be a sporty day of field, you know? Yeah. But you see, for us who are 4.5%, yeah. we do have to think about whether we're frustrated by it or not, we just have to think about the reality. You know, we live in a democratic society, very fortunately. Not everybody in the world does. Um, We do, and we're very fortunate to live in those societies. Uh, But that means that we do have to think about what the majority of people think about and how they think about the things we do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if we've got to educate everybody on sport, we've got to educate everybody on recreational hunting, we've got to educate everybody on trophy hunting, uh, you know, how, how long do we spend trying to educate? Let's simplify it. I get it. Yeah, yeah that's kind absolutely. of what I Well, and, and and I've talked about this in, in detail on the show before. Is, is And like you said, uh, we're 4%. We have probably 4% that are vehemently against hunting. And then we have everyone else, and it's the everyone else that we don't have to turn them into hunters. We just have to keep them on the fence and say, oh, yeah, I don't hunt, but my neighbor does. And uh, Thanksgiving, he invites me over, and we eat the turkey that he brought home, you know. We know that a significant majority of people, even in the year 2017, which is a a long time uh, since Jamestown, (laughs) (laughs) Um, we know that in 2017, for a majority of people, in both Canada and the United States, and in many other parts of the world, um, if you are making use of the full use of the animal, you know you're consuming the meat and, and, and all of that um, in in hunting, regulated, you know, legal hunting. Um, but the vast majority of people are in support of that. Mm-hmm. Let's not jeopardize that in any way by adding to you know the confusion uh, that is out there. The main principle is that hunting brought back wildlife in South Africa, not the trophy hunting did. You know, the adjective is not, again, so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Um, well, let's do this because there's one other thing I want to hit on quickly. Sure. So uh, are you okay to stick around for a few more minutes? Yes, I can. No problem. Excellent. And that segment was brought to you by IOTA Outdoors. Y'all have seen my Horizon Firearm 7 mag. 
one of my favorite things is the IOTA Custom Stock. It only weighs 27 ounces, so it's perfect for the backcountry hunter, or maybe if you're going to Africa, you're going to be doing a lot of spot and stalking. Ideal for that situation as well. And you'd think that only at 27 ounces, it would have a lot of recoil. No. IOTA has got a recoil system like none other that I've found. You can find the IOTA Crux. That's the one that I have at iotaoutdoors.com. All right, we will be right back with more from Shane Mahoney. How much wild game do we harvest and eat in North America? I honestly have no idea, uh, but Shane is heading up the study to measure that footprint as we speak. We'll get into it next right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Still doing time in a honky-tonk prison. Still doing time where a man ain't forgiven. I put hard Hey y'all, Cable here for Three Curl Outfitters. And whether you want to bow hunt hogs or get after them with thermal imaging and night vision, under the cover of darkness, Three Curl has you covered. They've got the latest and greatest thermal imaging and night vision technology. They hunt unlimited, I mean, just thousands upon thousands of acres of ag fields. Or if you're a bow hunter and you want to sit in a stand and wait for the hog to come to you, uh, they can do that as well. Check it out, 3curl.com to book your next hog hunt. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails Magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. Hey y'all, Cable here for my good friends over at Outlaw Outfitters. This veteran-owned and operated outfit will put you on the ducks, to say the least. I've been hunting with them for, gosh, four or five years now. They also do a deer, hog, and turkey as well. They have over 15,000 acres they hunt in Collin, Grayson, and Fannin counties. Whether you want to do a turnkey, you know, one morning waterfowl hunt, or a complete weekend package with authentic Cajun cooking and lodging, it's all right there within an hour of the Metroplex, and you can find them at huntoutlaw.com. There's a million conversations with my old man about who he was and who I am that I never had. I just wouldn't listen. I just kept digging myself down in them holes in my life. Down in my holes. Oh. 
Cody Johnson bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here today as we are rocking and rolling, visiting with uh, Conservation Visions founder and renowned conservationist Shane Mahoney. But before we jump back into it with Shane, uh, this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue and Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they're not making any more of, but we all want it. So if you're looking to finance a piece of Texas, then let Lone Star Ag Credit help you. They've been doing it for over 100 years, and you can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. All right. Uh, well, Shane, you've been nice enough to stick around for the entirety of today's broadcast. We certainly appreciate it, but we still have uh, one more thing to get into. Well, I'm delighted to do it. I'm enjoying myself. Well, I am too. Glad you're here. And uh, what I want to transition into now is the study that you're spearheading with the, uh, the overall goal of trying to quantify the amount of natural protein that hunters and anglers harvest annually in North America and the subsequent imprint that that harvest is responsible for. Well, one of the, um, one of the kind of perceptions, and we've talked a lot about public perceptions uh, on the show, um, one of the perceptions that's also sort of floating around out there is that this idea that the harvest of wildlife and the consumption of wildlife, you know, only occurs in sort of distant countries, maybe countries where people are disadvantaged, where they don't have access to other foods, or they're living in local circumstances where wildlife is the only option for them, etc. But uh, something that um, that uh, I had launched called the Wild Harvest Initiative, which Dallas Safari Club, by the way, was the first and uh, initial and remains a primary uh, supporter and, and, and funder of, um, is an attempt to sort of dispel that myth while at the same time reminding North Americans, Cana well, in this case, Canadians and U.S. citizens, uh, just how much wild food we actually gather and consume uh, from the environment in which we live. Um, between those two countries, uh, we have about 45 million people who each year, um, you know, uh, fish or hunt mm -hmm. combined. Um, and when you think about that number of people and the number of people who are successful, uh, and in the case of hunting, may be able to take uh, a number of animals, such as waterfowl hunting and so on, or even with deer hunting in some states, you know, you can take a couple of whitetails, etc. And you think about the total harvest that occurs there, and combine that then with the total harvest that comes from recreational fishing, everybody who, you know, fishes for salmon or trout in Newfoundland, or bass fishermen or other trout fishermen in other parts of the world or on the Pacific coast for salmon there, etc., um, and you think about the sheer numbers of people, you begin to grasp the fact that we have an enormous wild harvest taking place in our two countries. Now, this is not because we don't have alternatives. It's not because we don't have access to other foods. It's because a lot of people are making the willing choice, the specific decision, to go out and make as part of their food economy, part of their home health regime <laughs> to mm -hmm. go out and to harvest these wild creatures uh, for consumption by their family and their friends. 45 million people is not a small number of people, number one. Number two, the amount of harvest that they, uh, that they take from the land in a sustainable, 
environmentally friendly way is absolutely enormous. And then you think about the fact that everyone, and I'm sure you are absolutely no different than any other hunter or angler that I know, as soon as you have wild meat from fish or birds or mammals that you have harvested yourself, you have this insane desire to share it. And so you when you share it with your family, obviously, or your children or your parents or grandparents, your partners, or whatever. Um, but also you invite friends over. You may bring some of it to work so your colleagues can share in a chili. Or a I like your PC correctness there, your partners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I picked up on that. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you, uh, you, you think about that and you realize, well, let's say the average hunter shares or that fisherman uh, shares their um, uh, their food with you know four people. Let's mm-hmm. just say that. So, which is a small number. Uh, now, all of a sudden, you have uh, 45 million people times four mm-hmm. uh, in Canada and the United States who are touched by this wild harvest. Now, I'm not trying to be facetious or false here and say that you know all those people are relying on that wild harvest for their their daily, you know, food. In other words, if they don't have it, they don't perish or something. I'm not trying to make a ridiculous argument. But the point of fact is that all of those people do consume that food. It's an enormous amount of food. And the same people who are primarily responsible for harvesting that food, the anglers and hunters, are paying. They're not the only people paying for conservation, but they are paying a disproportionate amount for conservation because in addition to their general taxes that they pay at a state or provincial and federal or national level. They also pay these special permits, you know, to harvest the animals, to, to go fishing, to go hunting. They also are part of the taxation system in the United States in particular, where money is funneled to the state agencies for conservation. I mean, so you have this, this big community, this millions and millions of people who are out not only harvesting wild food in a sustainable way, and been demonstrating that it's sustainable for over a century, for over a century mm-hmm. in our two countries, doing it in an environmentally friendly way, sharing it freely with people. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what if they stop? How are we going to replace all of that food? And the only way we're going to be able to replace all of that food is through an expansion of existing agricultural practices. And of course, we we all rely on agriculture, and we have to have agriculture. But that means, of course, that inevitably we are going to have to take more wildlife habitat out of production. <laughs> that's so, the key right there. Is it, yeah. And not to mention the money that's lost from Absolutely. people who are no longer oh. buying licenses, and, and I'm not buying shells for my rifle and my shotgun, and all those Pittman-Robertson dollars are just gone. All this major domino effect all of a sudden starts to flow through society as all of these people, if we, if it, if we ever ended it, if it ever ended, this would all be lost. Hmm. Oh, now, the, the question that then comes to mind is, okay, how do we replace all of those organizations that are currently associated with hunting and angling? All the great NGOs uh, you know, that, that, that extend all the way from a, a Dallas Safari Club to a Ducks Unlimited to, you know, an Elk Foundation to uh, Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, to, you know, to the wildlife federations in both countries and so on and so forth. You know, all of that all of a sudden goes away. And all of that money and all of that lobbying for wildlife 
And all of that effort in wildlife habitat protection, that also goes away. So I have launched this wild harvest initiative uh, in North America to get at all of these questions and to demonstrate that, um, you know, this, this idea of relying on a wild, sustainable harvest from a natural environment that we care about and that maintains wildlife for everyone, not just for the hunter and the angler, but for the person who wishes to photograph and hike and rock climb and all of us who enjoy seeing wildlife and the activities that we enjoy, um, you know, we suddenly put all of this on the table, so to speak, um, at risk if we suddenly withdraw, you know, the hunting and angling communities from uh, engagement in Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. And I want to demonstrate this in a factual way. Uh, I want us to give a, an actual economic value to all of that meat and fish. I want us to derive an economic model that says if we lost it tomorrow, these are the kinds of investments we're going to have to make in terms of fertilizers, in terms of pesticides, in terms of you know, wildlife habitat lost, in terms of you know, carbon footprints and all those kinds of things. How many more cows and chickens and everything else we're going to have to, to raise? And we will have to. And we all know that we need to raise cows and we need to raise chickens and we need to. We, we, we realize that, too. I mean, there, 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 there's so many people. That yeah, you know when I eat that stuff? When I'm traveling from one hunting trip to another and I stop at McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, so we need it. But the point is if we have all of this sustainable wild harvest, and it's, it's an enormous harvest. You just think about this. It's an enormous harvest. In, in Michigan alone, researchers there at the Michigan State University have indicated that around between 26 and 33 million pounds of white-tailed deer meat, venison, uh, alone enter the food chain of the state of Michigan each year. Just in Michigan, wow. And that's one species. Yeah, that's one, it. Wow. One state. Yeah. Well, Texas harvests uh, the most deer in the country every year, so I would I, w I wonder what that would be. might be, 100 million pounds. I don't know. Well, uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife are also a partner, I'm very pleased to say, um, in the Wild Harvest Initiative. So uh, we have Dallas Safari Club and uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife and Houston Safari Club also uh, in the state are sponsors of this initiative. So we're soon going to know the answers to all those questions. Incredible. You can imagine when we apply that to all of Canada and the United States, how phenomenal this will be. And, you know, I... I, my business is not to, you know, is not to try to, as I said, make out that everything in the hunting world is perfect or that hunters are saints or that everybody should be a hunter or any of those things. I just want the modern society that is confused over trophy hunting, for example, that is confused over the word sport, and I mean genuinely confused. Um, I want them to understand what the value to wildlife conservation these activities are, and therefore what value to wildlife conservation organizations such as Dallas Safari Club are to the conservation of wildlife in Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. That's my objective. Well, I'll tell you the thing that is going to leave the lasting, uh, the most lasting impression on me from just what we've talked about here in the last 10 minutes, and that's um, when you said the the footprint, so if we eliminated hunting altogether, then the very, <laughs> these very animals that the anti-hunters 
claim to want to be saving, we're going to have to destroy more habitat to raise more crops, to put more cows on the landscape, to farm more chickens. That's the thing that sticks out to me. It's like, okay, here's here we are. Let's uh, yeah, let's do away with hunting. Boom, there went all your national forest, all everything else, habitat. Bye bye. So those animals you want to protect, they're gone. Yeah, I mean it's, uh, but you know it's, uh, it's we the have truth. a big uh, challenge to educate everyone, right? I mean, everyone in society has different interests and different things that preoccupy them. And not everybody is concerned about conservation issues, obviously, and not everybody who is agrees on the best approach. I mean, that's that's human nature. That's the society in which we live. But, you know, a lot of responsibility falls to the hunting community. And we shouldn't forget that. We, we're very good at blaming others. But, you know, we need to realize the responsibility for bringing these ideas to the public the responsibility for representing hunting appropriately, the responsibility for clarifying misconceptions falls fundamentally to us, mm -hmm. not to anybody else. And so everything from, you know, the articles that we write to the podcasts that we engage in to the conventions that we hold to the magazines that we publish um, to the, the way we represent ourselves on television or radio interviews or whatever it might be, you know, every every one of those efforts has an impact on society. And we do not control all of the factors that influence how a modern society thinks, whether it's on, you know, uh, gender issues or whether it's on, um, you know, national security issues, or whether it's on health issues, or whether it's on educational issues, the public is a complicated beast. And it's influenced by many, many, many social factors and changes. Um, and we have to realize that we are fighting for identity and space within a very complicated world. And we can't afford to make mistakes and we can't afford to simply say, I don't care what everybody else thinks. You know, I'm I'm a hunter, I'm an angler, and I'm going to do it forever. And, you know, <laughs> if Teddy Roosevelt and the people who led this movement thought that way, we would have nothing. Yeah. Because yeah. they were wealthy individuals, primarily from the Eastern American cities, who had every chance in life to do whatever they wanted to do. And they fought for things that would matter to people alive today who they knew they would never know. Yeah. Uh, and and I'll tell you, I mean, I run into that living in the state that I live in. Uh, a lot of Texas hunters think, and I, this mindset, I see it on social media and uh, emails. It's like, well, I live in Texas that they'll never take hunting away. Well, how do you, how do you think the houndsmen in Northern California feel about the fact that they can no longer hunt black bear and bobcat with their hounds you know i mean it can and does happen and when it happens whoa shane it's uh damn near impossible to get that 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 back it is it's very 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 difficult you know you can't put the you know you buy a buy a sleeping bag and it's in a stuff sack well after you sleep in it once try to get it back in there easily yeah. so, you know, putting things back in the container they came out of is not very easy on the simplest of terms Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just you're totally right. It's very very difficult to um, to 
to replace this once something like this has been taken. And we have examples in Canadian states and provinces. Oh, yeah, you guys just lost grizzly bear hunting in B.C. In British Columbia. So you, yeah. it's not quite, it's not gone, but there's a lot of change yeah, yeah. right there. But if you go to Europe, I mean, there's a longer history of change there where, you know, lots of people thought they could never lose certain kinds of hunting, and they have lost it. Um, you know, uh, the Newfoundland seal hunt, we have 7.2 million harp seals, and yet basically it's very, very difficult for us to to find any market for seal products because uh, people have closed it down. Mm-hmm. Now, if you talk to Newfoundlanders uh, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and said that would ever happen, that you'd have 7.2 million harp seals, and and, and, and the world essentially would, would close you down from harvesting a few of them, they would have told you, well, you're mad. Yeah. Uh, so it happens. Yeah, yeah. It happens. There's no, yeah, there's no doubt about that. But I, 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 I want to. Uh, I want, We're about out of time. Uh, another topic that I'd like to get into someday with you, though, is is talk about all the stuff we talked about more in depth on Africa and nope. some of these bans that, like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has imposed on some of these trophies and the effect that that has on. I don't, not, not the Americans, because it, you know, if you can afford to go over there and shoot a lion or a rhino, whatever. Uh, you're fine. But yep. what effect is that having on the local communities over there and the wildlife um, that, you know, is no longer, it doesn't have a value. When you take the value away, I think that it's, there's going to be a, a domino effect. So uh, well, there's no question about that. Well, I look forward to that. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you and uh, hopefully we can do it again. And hopefully I'll see you at the DSC convention this year. Absolutely. Well, tell us where folks can find you, Shane. Conservationvisions.com. That's all one word, conservationvisions.com. They can they can track me down pretty easily. All right. Well, good stuff. We certainly appreciate it. It's been uh, you've given me food for thought, and and when I walk away from a conversation uh, feeling like that, it's uh, it's always a positive thing. So I certainly appreciate it. Well, it's been great. Thanks very much, and take care of yourself. All the best. All right. There he goes, Shane Mahoney, truly a leader in the conservation field. Um, and a supporter of sustainable use hunting and and trophy hunting, although he did say he would shy away from that terminology. Uh, But I certainly enjoyed the conversation. Hope you all did as well. Just looking at the clock here, though, we got to go. Got to get out of here. That's all the fun we can have this week, uh, unfortunately. But we'll do it again, same time, same place next week. Uh, Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying happy hunting and have a great week in the outdoors. I live for the mornings when most folks still sleep. I'm in the woods at the crack of dawn and watch an eight-point bug sneak.